This month, our theme in worship and in children's classes is integrity. And so today, I offer you this story from our Unitarian history. Long, long ago, there lived a woman named Lydia Maria Child. Things were very different when she was growing up. There were no televisions, no cars, no radio. In fact, there were even hardly very many books. Why, most children didn't have any books. And many households, the only book there would be to read would be the Bible, which is a hard book to learn to read with. <laughs> but Lydia Maria Child still loved to read and to learn and to write. And even though she didn't get to go to school for very long, because back then, girls didn't go to school quite as long as boys did, she still would study with her older brother when he was studying at night. And she knew that writing was going to be an important part of her life. Well, when she was a young woman, she was asked to write a special magazine just for children. This was a whole new idea, to write something for children. Her magazine was full of poems and stories and pictures. It was wonderful. She wrote that magazine. She also wrote books for adults. She wrote one poem that is probably her most famous that we still remember. It started with, over the river and through the woods to grandfather's house we go. Yes, she was pretty successful as a writer and things were going pretty well in her life. And then Lydia Maria Child wrote another book. This one was about slavery. For our young ones who may not know yet, slavery is the wrong and horrible idea that people could be owned by someone else. And long ago, people from Africa were brought to America as slaves. They were not treated well, they were not paid for their labor, they were not allowed to live the lives of wholeness. It was a very wrong and horrible thing, and Lydia Maria Child knew in her heart that it was wrong and horrible. But she also knew that if she just wrote what was in her heart, not many people would listen to her. So she went to the library and she did a bunch of research and she looked into the history of Africa and people from Africa and she looked into the whole system of how economics was involved in it and she came up with a bunch of arguments and she wrote them all in a big book. And people who read her book were pretty upset with her. She lost her job, she lost a bunch of friends, she was shunned by society, things were pretty hard. But one person read her book and it changed his mind a little bit. The most famous Unitarian minister at the time was William Ellery Channing and he also knew in his heart that slavery was wrong, but he hadn't said anything about it. He had many reasons why he hadn't said anything about it. He didn't like conflict, he didn't like politics, and also there were people in his congregation like mill owners who benefited from slavery and might be mad if he said something against it. He was also not really, he worried about being too radical and so he'd been really cautious. But he read Lydia Maria Child's book and he asked to talk to her. And she came over and we don't know exactly what they talked about, but they probably drank tea it's a good guess. They drank tea and they talked. 
And we know that after they had that talk, that William Ellery Channing said that that conversation convinced him that he also needed to take a stand. And when he wrote his book about slavery, many more people read that. And one by one, bit by bit, more people chose to take a stand and to say that it was wrong. And eventually, slavery was ended. Lydia Maria Child, though, lived to be a very old woman, and she kept on writing for freedom, for justice, for women, for African Americans, for Native Americans, and we can learn from her life today. I wonder what she would write about today. I wonder what we could write about or say today. Our first reading today is an excerpt from a summary of Dr. King's philosophy offered by the King Center. The core value of the quest for Dr. King's beloved community was agape love. Dr. King distinguished between three kinds of love. Eros, a sort of aesthetic or romantic love. Philia, affection between friends. And agape, which he described as understanding, redeeming goodwill for all, an overflowing love which is purely spontaneous, unmotivated, groundless, and creative. The love of God appearing in the human heart. He said that agape does not begin by discriminating between worthy and unworthy people. It begins by loving others for their sake and makes no distinction between friend and enemy it is directed toward both. Agape love is seeking to preserve and create community. In his 1963 sermon, Loving Your Enemies, Dr. King addressed the role of unconditional love in struggling for the beloved community. With every ounce of our energy, we must continue to rid this nation of the incubus of segregation but we shall not in the process relinquish our privilege and our obligation to love. While abhorring segregation, we shall love the segregationist. This is the only way to create beloved community. For the second reading, I invite you to join me in a responsive reading. The reading is titled, the promise and the practice litany. The promise that binds is by Viola Abbott. Reverend Abbott's uh, deeply felt words evolved from the white supremacy teachings here, right here at OUUC. We'll speak the refrain together. I will speak my lines first. Then if you would please speak the response. You'll find those words in your order of service in italics. The final refrain is slightly different than the earlier refrains. Loving inclusion has been an elusive goal within our congregations. We are a covenantal people, and the promise of our faith, which was enough to bring us together, surely enough to 
Many hearts have been and often continue to be broken time and again. The names of many of those of us who helped to make this denomination great were erased, their existence forgotten. The pulpits and pews, which should have been warm and welcoming, were instead sometimes cold and unforgiving. People who were considered pillars in their communities were sometimes considered pariahs within the walls of our congregations. Many of us straddle two worlds, one of filiation and one of faith. Our beauty is that we are all different, and yet not different from one another. None of us should be considered exceptions, nor should we be subjected to baseless assumptions. And now the final refrain in response. The future of this faith is reliant on and belongs to all who embrace religious liberalism. Let us never forget that. We are So ends our readings. I remember one time when I was a little girl in Lutheran Sunday school in the Midwest, coloring a picture of Jesus standing in the middle of a group of animals, cows and horses, lambs and goats, zebras and lions. Pretty much like Jesus in a zoo, only the animals were free, and everybody was content and happy. This image of the peaceable kingdom is taken from the book of Isaiah in the Hebrew Bible. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. I have since learned that this serene and beautiful biblical passage is one used to study the theological topic of eschatology, the study of the end times. This complex and multi-layered topic is briefly the idea that there will be a future time with the coming or the second coming of a Messiah when the world will be at peace and there will be plenty 
no war, no hunger, no suffering. A beautiful image. For some, this provides an image of heaven elsewhere, and it can be a balm for those suffering in this world and at this time. It can also be an excuse, a justification for oppression. It will be better in the next life, in heaven, someday. Just wait. In liberal religious traditions like Unitarian Universalism, we tend to not focus on the end times so much. Now, in this election year, I want to be really clear that I am talking about liberal religion, not liberal politics. They are really different things, and I'm pretty sure that's going to be the topic of a sermon sometime this spring. <laughs> but for today, I want to talk a moment about the characteristics of religious liberalism. Unitarian minister and theologian James Luther Adams identified five characteristics of liberal religions that he labeled the five smooth stones. The image of the stones comes from the biblical story of David and Goliath. When he went to face his enemy, David took only his sling and five smooth stones. So one of the five smooth stones of religious liberalism speaks directly to our tendency to turn away from the notion of the end times. Adams says this, religious liberalism affirms the moral obligation to direct one's effort toward the establishment of a just and loving community. It is this which makes the role of the prophet central and indispensable in liberalism. As Unitarian Universalists, we are committed to creating heaven here on earth now, not some distant place at some distant time. Justice here now. This weekend, we honor the life and teachings of one of those central and indispensable prophets, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Dr. King helped define a liberal Christian tradition that called for the peace that comes from justice in this world. Instead of preaching about the peaceable kingdom, that would come someday. He preached about justice here, now, and he called that beloved community. The term beloved community was popularized by Dr. King, but it was created by theologian Josiah Royce. Royce helped found the American branch of the Fellowship of Reconciliation in 1915 to oppose the United States' entry into a war that had broken out in Europe, the war which would become World War I. The Fellowship of Reconciliation claims to be the largest and oldest interfaith peace and justice organization in the U.S., today focusing on peace and demilitarization, especially in the Middle East. 
Its tenets include the use of nonviolence to resolve conflict and the right of conscience. Dr. King was a member of the Fellowship of Reconciliation and he brought these teachings into his civil rights work. For Dr. King, beloved community was not some unattainable ideal, but a realistic and achievable goal that would come to fruition when a critical mass of people were committed to, trained in, and using nonviolence as a way of life. The King Center says this, Dr. King's beloved community is a global vision in which people can share the wealth of the earth. In the beloved community, poverty, hunger, and homelessness will not be tolerated because international standards of human decency will not allow it. Racism and all forms of discrimination, bigotry, and prejudice will be replaced by an all-inclusive spirit of unity. In the beloved community, international disputes will be resolved by peaceful conflict resolution and reconciliation of adversaries instead of military power. Love and trust will triumph over fear and hatred. Peace with justice will prevail over war and military conflict. Dr. King not only painted a vision of what could be but he offered the tools to get there. Principles of nonviolence and steps for nonviolent social change. The principles are things like nonviolence is a way of life for courageous people. Nonviolence chooses love instead of hate, and nonviolence seeks to defeat injustice, not people. Tools for social change include education, direct action, and reconciliation. It is important to note that Dr. King did not deny the presence of conflict, and in fact, he named it as a real part of our human existence. Rather, he called on us to resolve conflict using nonviolent means. This reminds me of the part of the covenant of this congregation that reads, because we recognize that conflict is normal, we promise to speak with each other directly and honestly from a position of respect, kindness, and love, recognizing that to do so, there will be times when we need to seek counsel from the community. By our covenant, we also have aspirations for building the beloved community. So why is beloved community aspirational and not yet real? Well, Dr. King described three forms of violence that are barriers to beloved community, which he called the triple evils. They are poverty, racism, and militarism. According to the King Center, poverty is characterized by unemployment, homelessness, slums, hunger, malnutrition, illiteracy, and infant mortality. To this list of ills, I would add income inequality, 
lack of universal health care, punitive bankruptcy laws, and lack of commitment to a living wage. What makes poverty a violence is not only its impact on people, for it is indeed violent to people, but the fact that there is enough. There is enough for everyone to have what is needed for life. That we do not choose to create and support systems that ensure the equitable distribution of enough to everyone is a violence to all of us and the bonds that unite us. The second evil of racism shows up as prejudice, apartheid, ethnic conflict, anti-Semitism, sexism, colonialism, homophobia, ageism, discrimination against people with disabilities, and stereotypes. To this list, I would add anti-Muslim sentiment, an us-and-them mentality, and exclusion of all kinds. Dr. King said that racism is a philosophy based on contempt for life. Contempt for life. It is a philosophy that places one group above all others, naming the other as less than, bad, unworthy, even evil. And this leads to violence against bodies, minds, and spirits. All of the isms deny the reality of our humanity. And they are threats to life because they deny that we are interdependent. Dr. King's inescapable network of mutuality. None of us is free until all of us are free. Our chalice lighting this morning had these words, melting away the tethers that uphold whiteness. So what does whiteness mean? It's a philosophy of racism. The idea that white skin and white culture is best. That white skin and culture is normal. It is ideal. It is supreme. White supremacy. Racism. One of the principles of nonviolence is that it seeks to defeat injustice, not people. Calling out whiteness doesn't make white people villains. It names the racism that has been built into our systems that discriminate against anyone who is not white in skin color, in behavior, and in culture. Our systems are racist. They were made that way to concentrate and preserve power in the hands of a few. That is the injustice that we are called to defeat. The third and final evil that prevents beloved community is militarism. This is experienced as war, imperialism, domestic violence, rape, terrorism, human trafficking, media violence, drugs, child abuse, and violent crime.
And to this list, I would add all forms of sexual violence, as well as detention centers and refugee camps. Militarism is simply handling differences in a violent way with the goal of conquest, rather than handling differences with methods of peaceful conflict resolution with the goal of reconciliation. In exploring the spiritual theme of integrity as we are doing this month, our focus tends to go to the personal. How does a person have integrity or live with integrity? How do we stay whole? Dr. King's beloved community offers us a way to expand the idea of integrity to something much bigger. Beloved community is integrity, wholeness at the community level. Us means all of us. We don't leave some parts of us behind. We rejoice in the many ways that we are alike, and we work with honesty and commitment to resolve the ways in which we are different and may be in conflict. So, right about now, we might be feeling just a little bit overwhelmed. Those were really long lists of evils that I read out loud. They are real, and they exist in our world, the world where we want to create beloved community. That aspiration might feel really out of reach right now. I can understand why the image of the peaceable kingdom is so attractive. Not only because it's a lovely image, but it can seem easier. We wait for the Messiah. Someone else will come and save us, creating heaven somewhere else. We don't have to do anything or learn anything or change anything. In the ongoing work of our religious, liberal religious community, it's up to us. We take action, we learn things, we make change in our minds and in our hearts and in our world. We create heaven on earth, justice here, now. As our chalice lighting this morning said, May the flame ignite in us a radical love that transforms our energy into purposeful action. Tomorrow, we will mark the 25th anniversary of the day of service that celebrates the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s life and legacy. Martin Luther King Day is the only federal holiday that is designated as a national day of service to encourage all Americans to volunteer to improve our communities. It is a day on rather than a day off. And if you are wondering how to spend this day on, I have a few suggestions. First, there are people and groups working to defeat each one of the evils that I read off earlier. 
every single one of them, whether it's books, brownies, and beans to help fund homeless programs, or visiting asylum seekers in detention camps, or working to stop human trafficking, or helping build relationships between Muslims and Jews here in the US and in the Middle East. There are a million ways that we can change the world. Just pick one. A colleague once gave me a lifeline when I was feeling especially discouraged and overwhelmed about the state of the world and the state of humanity. She reminded me of our interdependent web and that we are all connected. So just pick a strand in the web and pull it toward justice, she said. It pulls everything else toward justice too. When you work for immigrant justice, it impacts environmental justice. When you work for LGBTQ rights, it impacts women's rights. When you work to combat climate chaos, it impacts everything because it's all connected. So just pick something and work on it. It doesn't matter what, just pick something and pull it toward justice. We can help bend the arc of the universe. Second, if you're not familiar with the principles of nonviolence, I invite you to explore them at the King Center website and elsewhere. They contain an invitation to integrity, both wholeness and at the community level, both personal and at the community level. They offer food for reflection. You may not agree with them or adopt them into your life, and they are worth considering. Most importantly, they offer a context for hope. And third, I invite you to educate yourself about the Eighth Principle Project if you're not already familiar with it. Just because I'm curious, how many folks know about the Eighth Principle Project? Just a couple. Oh, good. <laughs> then there's, there's some, some learning to happen. So in Unitarian Universalism, we have seven principles, right, that inform our theology and guide our behavior. In May of 2017, two women, one African-American and one white, proposed to the UUA, our national organization, the eighth principle that explicitly names the beloved community as one of our goals. Mm. The principle is under study this year and will be discussed at the 2020 General Assembly, which will happen this June, our annual gathering. And this is how the proposed principle currently reads. We, the member congregations of the Unitarian Universalist Association, covenant to affirm and promote, journeying toward spiritual wholeness by working to build a diverse, multicultural, beloved community by our actions, that accountably dismantle racism and other oppressions in ourselves and our institutions. The consideration of this proposed principle is fundamentally a conversation about the heart of our faith tradition and how we are called to be in this world. Is beloved community our goal? And if it is, what does that mean for our beliefs and our actions. What may we need to let go of? And what may need to be different? These are important questions for our faith community nationally and here in Olympia. 
As you heard in our story, our Unitarian history is intertwined with racism. William Ellery Channing, the most famous Unitarian preacher and theologian of the early to mid-1800s, was conflicted about speaking out against slavery. He knew it was immoral, and he was faced with a moral dilemma, forced to consider his integrity and the integrity of his community. The words of a spiritually grounded woman who was committed to justice helped open the mind and heart of this famous minister. I find hope in his transformation because it reminds me that it is always possible. We are an association of congregations that covenant together, just like we covenant together to be in this congregation. How we choose to do that is important. What we set as our goals is important. And how we keep our covenant and come back to it when we break it, because we always will, these are important as well. I invite you to be part of these vital conversations in whatever way you can. So to close this morning, I invite you to join me in a brief recognition of our connection in community. I experienced this at our General Assembly a few years ago in Columbus, Ohio. So as you are comfortable, make physical contact with the people that are near you. And if you're comfortable, you might take someone's hand. And when we've joined hands, would you please repeat after me? I put my hand in yours. I put my hand in yours so that we may do together, so that we may do together what I cannot do alone, what I cannot do alone. Amen. And let us hold each other as we hold a moment of silence together.